Oh yeah, I found the thing's hey. name. What? My my joke name. Do you remember what it's called? The Shub Nigarath. If you're talking about the Blood God from Methods of Rationality, that is a reference to Korn from the Warhammer 40k universe. Uh, if you're talking about Shub Nigarath, that is an outer god from the HP Lovecraft uh, universe reference. So those are two different gods. All right. Well, we're leaving all that in because that's the joke name I chose was Blood God from MOR. And <laughs> now you know both of the things I could have been referencing, and I don't know which one I was referencing. So I went, okay. I went and found the section during no, the first no, battle when Neville is yelling blood for the blood god, skulls for the skull throne. And yeah, in that case, he's referencing Korn. Korn is the god of war from the Warhammer 40k universe, and he's called the Blood God. He sits upon a skull throne. But then he says, Ia Shub Nigarath. Yeah, you know, Harry likes to mix up everything. Oh, I know. The next se- the next sentence is, the enemy's gate is sideways. So, <laughs> yes, uh, right. That one <laughs> so, I recognize. Uh, yeah. Actually, no, the enemy's gate is down. Was, uh, yes, was but the ended. joke was yeah, sideways. Yeah. 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 Well, it, what's great is just like all, half of Dune's jokes, it's a joke only uh, Harry understood right that's true it's yeah. a reference that only he understood and it's a joke that only he got <laughs> i mean some of them might have got it i remember when he did uh he named everybody rogue red or red squad leader you oh, know yeah. from the uh i forgot star there wars are, there are monkborn yeah there was one guy who said uh the, the text said he'd been waiting his entire life to say that's it. right well i've been waiting my entire life to say that this is the show not everything is a clue where you and i <laughs> you being Inyash brodsky i being steven zuber Discuss Alexander Wales' web serial Worth the Candle, available on Amazon in audiobook and ebook, the first several chapters of it. Links to in the show Hell, notes. Yes. You can also support uh, Alexander Wales at his Patreon. And likewise, you can support us at our Patreon. If you appreciate what we're doing here, we do kick back 15% to Alexander as well. And uh, with that said, so shall we jump baby. into our. That's right. Should we jump into our From the Audience? I can't think of a better time to do it. Okay. Uh, the first thing I had was from Wes, who said that I was committing the sunk cost fallacy in our last episode when I said that uh, the the instant copies of me are are worth uh, almost nothing because there was you know almost no effort put into making them. He says that actually every person with thirty years of life has the exact same value. If you instantly clone one, you just have doubled the value, uh, which I don't know how to argue against. But you know, I, I am not updating yet because I, it sounds fishy to me. It's interesting. That's not how I would have put it, but he's making the same point I was making. And I think that he's right. Um, like, I, I didn't read the longer version of the conversation, so he might have said this. But the, you know, my, my take is it doesn't matter how long by the clock it took you to become the person you are. You matter because of who you are, right? That That's my position anyway. Um, mm. And that sounds like that's what Wes is saying. Mm. It does sound like what Wes is saying. I don't know. I have the strong intuition whenever I read multiverse tales that uh, the they, the story just completely loses all stakes and meaning for me because once everything exists infinitely, who cares if, you know, a billion of universes are destroyed? If there's, you know, literally infinite quadrillions of universes out there of almost the exact same people or, you know, actually in a truly infinite multiverse, there's even an infinite number of the exact same person. So why what, what does it matter if, you know half the universes are snuffed out. Like it just, I, I don't see what the additional value is of having an, a duplicate universe next door. It's exactly twice as value or twi- twice as valuable. But I, I, I totally share your intuition. Rick and Morty yeah. did a nice job uh, kind of hitting that on the head. Right. Yeah. But there weren't, there weren't actually infinite, right? There were, there were a lot. In Rick and Morty, they weren't. Yeah. yeah. 
and that that actually did add value some something i don't want to ever make an argument of the flavor uh the fact that it's limited make is what makes it valuable so uh that that sounds like deathist talk right there (laughs) sure that's fair yeah Hmm. it's not actually fair though i mean if you know that, that could be a valid line of reasoning in other positions so I mean, things that are scarce generally have more value because there's less of them to go around. But I'm not sure if that's the that's the type of value that we're talking about. I think we'd, you know, we'd have to do like an entire episode on it. All right. Well, and uh, I also have not thought about it that deeply just yet. So uh, we'll put, uh, I got to do that first. Exactly. All right. All right. Next uh, on, uh, let's on the list of audience feedback, Gad BB on the Reddit. Yes. You want to grab this first one? It's the one in the different color. Yeah. Um, saying regarding consent discussion on the podcast, I think a big factor in the issues you're discussing is whether someone can revoke their consent. I think you need a pretty good set of exceptional circumstances to feel good and moral about people consenting, consenting to things without being able to change their mind. That's a great point. Um, I'm not yeah. sure if this is in regards to Captain Blue in the Bottle or um, Amaryllis's. It was. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, he's a, I don't know where exactly what we said on the subject, but, um, you know, Captain Blue is clearly a mustache twirling puppy stomping psychopath. Right. So yeah. his, his thing is like, well, they said they wanted to do it and it's like, <laughs> it's not good enough, man. And yeah. you can't ask him again a hundred years into their manual labor if they're still okay with it. So, yeah. uh, yeah. I, I mostly agree with Gad Beebe. Uh, you know, an important thing to be able to do is commit, uh, make strong commitments that are fulfilled in the future, because otherwise, like, you can't coordinate on most things, you can't make plans for the future, you can't sign contracts. But also, there is ways to get out of most contracts. Uh, usually, it comes with a price. Uh, if nothing else, you get uh, bankruptcy and your credit score plummets and other people don't trust you as much in the future. So, yeah, they're, they're, I- I'm not sure you should necessarily be able to... Um, unilaterally withdraw consent from anything without any uh consequences but i do think that he has a damn good point that making it impossible to revoke consent is a terrible thing that we do not want to uh encourage at all and that added some distinct nuance that i am glad to have because you know we we do have laws that say you can opt out of things that you consented to that are very important. You just might have to pay some sort of price to do it. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense, you know, especially with like, as alluded to like, you know, mortgages or rent or something, you know, I sign, mm-hmm. I sign a long stack of paperwork that says I'm allowed to live here and uh, tell people I own the house, but really the bank owns it. And I get to keep doing that as long as I keep paying you guys money. Uh, the, when I, as soon as I stop doing that, you guys are allowed to start the process of saying, actually, that is our house. Remember? So, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's all fine and dandy. Um, I, I don't get the impression unless there is larger context about contracts and stuff, but you know, that, that sort of consenting is different than like, um, I'm trying to think if this happened in real life or if this, someone told me about this or whatever. So I'll just say hypothetically, um, a friend asks you to move and mm-hmm. you get there at the agreed upon time, 10 AM Saturday, and you walk in, they're not even packed. You know, their, oh, yeah. their sheets are still means. in the bed, you know, yeah. nothing, all their clothes are still in the closet and they're like, all right, let's get, let's get started. And you're like, no, I was going to help you move, not like right. do all the work for you. And yeah. so, you know, I guess in that case, you didn't know what you were agreeing to or whatever, but you can, I think you can safely withdraw your consent. That's like a more of a personal thing. It shouldn't have, you know, shouldn't have a huge cost associated with it. Just like mm-hmm. at any point, if, you know, Amaryllis is like, all right, June, let's, let's try the, uh, um, all the stuff I saw in those movies, uh, 
at any point she can tap out and there's, you know, that, and everybody's okay with that. Right. Like that's the, that's the kind of like personal level where everything, there's not even any moral squiggliness to it. So. Yep. Yeah. All right. And finally, once again, get BB. Uh, There was some brief discussion about whether the airbest therapy hypothesis still makes sense. Uh, Get BB says, I'm taking the air therapy as roughly the best explanation we got. I definitely had my doubts after Bethel raping June, but it was dealt with so remarkably well and so supportively that the rape doesn't seem as incompatible with therapy as I originally thought. I have some hazy thoughts about what the point of it might have been. They all center around original June thinking of himself as a rapist. Perhaps he is just conflicted about Maddie, or there are things he's done that he doesn't remember, like I previously said about murder. I've been confused on many counts about June's description of how awful he has been. Examples that Gadbibi gives are Maddie and the Felseed incidents in particular. Uh, there's an inconsistency here that I think is either one, incomplete memories where June actually was that awful to merit his self-hatred, or two, June just reacting disproportionately. Uh, I think these are great points, which is why I read them here. Uh, either one of them could be the thing. And if June does have, you know, a lot of self-loathing for no good reason, being disproportionate to smaller events, you know, this sort of therapy could very much help him get over that sort of thing. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, it's great. We seem to be, as you read, uh, like point by point, um, it hadn't occurred to me to reassess the, like, is this therapy for June after the Bethel thing? And then as I was doing that, you were reading the next thing and I was already halfway to where Gad BB was, uh, <laughs> when you finished reading it. So, um, it's always gratifying when someone else agrees with you, uh, even if you're forming your thoughts in real time. So yeah, no, I mean, uh, there's there's clearly something going on at the fell seed thing. I have no idea what the incident could be, but I'm looking forward to finding out. And you know, maybe we got the full story with Maddie, and it is just like his, you know, Midwestern hangups that have a level of justification in June's own mind, right? Mm-hmm. So, but no, I like it. I mean, the therapy thing, it just. It seemed so on the nose, you know, he's, he's torn up or not, not on the nose, but it just seems like that's what this was for the whole time. Um, Mm -hmm. as soon as he learns Arthur's here in some guise, you know, he doesn't know that it's really him until he talks to the DM and the DM could be lying. Um, Mm -hmm. or no, he, he suspects when he reads in that book about the juniper bush and the Smith statue and stuff. Um, but you know, it's like, what else could this all be for if not to help him with that thing that's been fucking his life up, you know? Yeah. But maybe it's something else. The, the the DM did say that he wouldn't like the reasons, so. That's true. Yeah, got to keep that in our back pocket, I guess. And yeah, if the DM was telling the truth, then at some point, June's going to be really fucking pissed at the DM again. Maybe the maybe June just hates therapy. <laughs> it could be. Maybe that's why they had to put him in a fantasy world, because June would literally rather go to a fantasy world and have to become a god than uh, go to therapy. You know, he did tell Valencia he didn't like therapy. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, then that's that's plausible. I'm going to run with that. Cool. I think I'm going to run all the way to where the streets run red. Excellent, which is a chapter title for 203. And so we should jump right into that. Um, I They start off with another flashback to Bumblefuck, Kansas, where they're talking about a drow city. And they are supposed to be just horrible places that are dystopic and run by lawful evil people, because that's what all drow are. And, is drow uh, from something? 
Yeah, from D&D. They're the dark elves. They live underground. They are basically the opposite of high elves. They Well, not the opposite, because they're still very aristocratic and, uh, you know, highfalutin. They like fancy wines. They are extremely lawful, but they are also extremely evil. Uh, they are like uh, Doris. I, even Doris Finch is not that evil. She's just chaotic. It's uh yeah, they're just very evil. Okay, yeah. So not an original thing. I at least people people know what he's talking about. Um, yeah, yeah. Right on. Yeah. What I liked is just we haven't had good old fashioned flashback for quite a while. It has been, yeah. And this one, I don't know. It was you know, it set up the next action, which it always does, but I didn't find it as great as the normal flashbacks. No, it was just a good um like setting up a an expectation. You know, June's arguing why. No, no, it has to have a limit on all the murders. Because mm-hmm. it's not sustainable otherwise. <laughs> you, the whole time mm-hmm. you're just laughing to yourself because you're like, unless, you know, murder costs nothing and in mm-hmm. fact feeds everybody. And so then mm-hmm. at some point he mentions replacement rates and it's like, yes, exactly. Uh, when your replacement yeah. rate is the snap of a finger and you get a fully other, you know, not just like pile of meat, but one that is exactly as skilled at everything as you are. Um, mm. then there's no reason Dorisopolis shouldn't be a mountain of corpses. Right? Yeah. I think th- this kind of points out that like, or in my opinion, it's that June always wanted some sort of Mad Max style uh, murder happy society, right? Like you can have great adventures in there, but those things are extremely unstable for exactly the reason he said. You, they, they, the replacement rate is is unsustainable. So, you know, maybe you'll have that for a few years, but eventually you got to go back to some sort of stable government. Uh, but, you know, he he wanted to have this sort of uh, z- <laughs> adventure zone, I guess, an exclusion zone where this sort of thing can just always be there, so players can pop in and uh, and have that their Mad Max style adventures, and thus the Doris Finch EZ exists. It'd be interesting if, like, instead of just air being built from June's, you know, inspired by June's stuff, if like he actually designed every step of his therapy or whatever this is along the way, right? Ooh, because. You're right. It, it hits this beat perfectly. Like if you wanted to have uh, whatever the crazy Murderville, mm-hmm. um, but it also we we learned down the road. You know, Doris Finch is who she is, so that she can quite literally you know kick the shit out of herself and murder herself because she feels like she deserves it. Mm-hmm. Who does that sound like? You know, June hey. when he's when he's sad, right? Mm-hmm. Well, sad. I'm I'm belittling it. June when he's feeling particularly down. <laughs> June when he is suffering from terrible um, emotional anguish and and depression. And when he's having That's mental cool. problems. There you go. Cool. Well, so, yeah, he says uh, that there are elements of Arab that I would have argued were grimdark. And I wanted your opinion on this. Do you think that Worth the Candle, this book that we're reading, is grimdark? I have a great answer for you. I don't know what grimdark okay. is. Oh. Um, <laughs> other other uh, than what you've told me and what June told me in this. Um, well, poop okay so uh, I, grimdark I, it's a shit answer yeah uh grimdark is like oh you totally know what grimdark is it's like uh the beginning of berserk where everything is grim and awful before they have the flashback oh. grimdark is the warhammer uh universe where there is only uh war and censorship and dystopia and tyranny and that's all anyone ever look has to look forward to okay that's uh if you're painting like the rough parts of berserk is grimdark then i have a great idea and it ceases to be like it is it because you say later that um, June's not gothic enough for this to have for this to be proper grimdark, right? 
Yeah, I think a, a protagonist in a grimdark story always has to be like dark and brooding and or tortured or or something, you know. And and June just doesn't have that. Possibly, maybe he'll get to it, but I think he's having too much fun for it to be grimdark. Okay, and so it's not fun, or, or the fun uh, still bursts the bubble of grimdark, even if the fun is like brutally and savagely murdering someone's father in front of a crowd, like he did to Onion, right? Like, right. Because it is just the fact that he's having a good time. And it's yeah. like, no, this is grimdark. No one's having fun. Yes. Like, okay. I mean, despite the fact that Warhammer 40k is literally the trope name of grimdark, there's a race in there called orcs, of course, uh, who love war. They're just, they have such a great time whenever they're murdering and killing and getting killed. And I, any, any book that takes place from their POV, I don't think could be called grimdark because eh, they, this, this sort of slaughter is fun for them. Right, the bad the bad guys, or at least not the protagonists, are allowed to have fun. Um, it's just that the main protagonist can't. You know, there can be glimmers of hope and sunshine, but it's yeah. just surrounded in a morass of dark shit. Right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, you're describing Berserk perfectly. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, no, that's not this. Um, he, but elements is how he puts it. Yeah, and I think he's spot on there, as as he says. You know, looking at Arab in general. There are motorcycles that run on souls, 9,000 hells, the looming threat of exclusionary principle to come crush cities and strip out industries. And like, that sounds metal as fuck. And mm-hmm. I don't know if, you know, uh, metal as fuck is a necessary ingredient in Grimdark. But uh, if I'm going from Berserk, it seems like an ingredient. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, I don't want to tell everyone how he loses his arm. It's not a spoiler that he does because he doesn't have it in the first panel or the first episode depending on what you're looking at. But uh, let's just say he loses it in a super metal fucking way. Um, you know, <laughs> so I think that, I think that's an ingredient. Yeah. But it's not sufficient. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so I guess what you're saying is you don't feel like worth the candle feels like grim dark either. Not, despite the many elements. Not, not if my, uh, if my anchor is berserk, uh, there are elements like, so like June says, there are elements of it that you can't argue are totally grimdark, right? Um, mm-hmm. There's nothing more fucked up than, well, currently we've seen um, uh, the Captain Blue in the Bottle exclusion yeah. zone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Doris thing, at least they're all doing this to each other, right? Right. Uh, Felseed's exclusion zone's no doubt worse than the Captain's, but, um, you know, those, those. so they, there are elements of this stuff, but, you know, he got to bang an elf and, he may have an orgy with a bunch of redheads, you know, like mm-hmm. with a bunch of redheaded clones, I mean, of themselves. So, mm-hmm. uh, like, it's, you know, get that if uh, if, if your life is just full misery. Uh, yeah. So there there was a, a quick thing I wanted to grab. I'll summarize it. But he's he's saying that the book of my adventures on air would have had some grim and some dark stuff, but it wouldn't have been only that, not unless you're willing to cut out, you know, like playing rank, ranks with Grack. Amaryllis introducing him to rock climbing. He doesn't mention the blowjobs or the, you know, <laughs> making out. But he says the long mm-hmm. conversation that Fen and I had about why anyone would voluntarily use the awesome power of the internet to watch some stranger play a video game. And then par- par- parenthetically, it says, and yeah, it would have taken 20 pages, then abruptly ended with a sex scene, but I would have included it all the same. Um, mm-hmm. What's What I love about that is that's what we saw in this book. Yes. I don't recall Although- the Twitch thing being a 20 page conversation. No, it was not. It was it was like a paragraph. But they definitely mentioned it, right? Yes, they did. Awesome. And yeah. so uh maybe that was in the the draft and he cut it during editing. Exactly. Um 
so it it does seem like uh this, this book is so fucking awesomely meta you know mm-hmm. there, there's a book in the story called the name of this book and mm-hmm. he's saying well if i was writing the book of my of what's going on here i'd include these things and it's like that's actually in this book um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's perfect it's awesome um so all right so they're but, going through dorsopolis yeah star doris is leading them to the um blue palace i don't know what we want to call it but they all they've all got this awesome house where they get to eat and you know be comfortable and uh his crown of eyes goes nuts because he can suddenly see himself a lot more and he's like oh shit they're multiplying on mass quick meta note my my notes were out of order that i took because if anyone else uses an uh apple device with the latest operating system and has the books app on it you'll notice when you take notes it doesn't save them in any meaningful order it it mm-hmm. trends towards keeping them in chronological order, but will mm-hmm. randomly put them out of order. And there doesn't seem that's... to be like a "Can you put this in the right fucking order for me, please?" button. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's fucking terrible. Yeah, I managed to get by this far because up until uh, Friday, I had another computer I was using to co- uh, collect all my notes, which is my work laptop, which is one OS behind. But I don't work there anymore, so mm. uh, I will have to probably just read from the website and copy and paste by hand to a notes document, which is totally fine, but it was, uh, it was annoying. So stuff was out of order. Yeah. Um, anyway, they're being mobbed, but worse than mobbed, like world war Z style mobbed. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, Barry. well, I mean, yeah. If you've ever seen like a real panic crush, it's, it's fucking awful. Uh, I mean, people just get stuck in doorways and crushed to death because, uh, the, they can't get out because, you know, they're wedged in. It's yeah, it sucks. It sounds terrifying. I volunteered for a safety committee at a place that I worked. And as part of that, they make you watch this video. And part of the video was about a nightclub where they had a fire breakout and people rushed the front door and literally got wedged in it. And the people behind them, like, couldn't push them through. And you could hear them screaming as they burned to death. And I was like, why the fuck did you make me watch this? If I had known what I was about to see, I would have opted out because this is some bullshit, man. No one needs to see that. This is, I mean, I totally agree. They could have done it with a nice, uh, you know, cartoony diagram, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people, I think, you know, are understandably reactionary against like the whatever delicate snowflake lefty, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't actually see a problem with trigger warnings. Like, I mean, you know, heads up. This is r slash watch people die. If you don't want to yeah. watch this video, don't. Um, yeah. I think that would have been nice, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it's just a, a general courtesy at that point. You know, what you need to include on the list of what's triggering, you know, maybe there's some, there's definitely some argument room there, but, uh, you know, hey, if, if uh, you know, for all they know, I think- you know, you're, it, it, I mean, it doesn't matter if, you know, if you, you happen to know somebody who got burned to death in a fire, but like, if you did, that could make this extra, you know, fucked up for you, right? Uh, I mean, I think a lot of it is just expectations. Like, if you read a horror novel, you expect to see some fucked up shit. And if there's certain fucked up shit you don't want to see, maybe Google a horror novel before you read one. But uh, if you're just going to a safety um, meeting and seeing a video, you you don't expect that kind of thing, you know? You don't expect something that you definitely wouldn't be allowed to show a coworker. Yeah. You know? Um, I guess on, on that note, uh, I recommend Berserk highly, both the manga and the 97 anime. The 2016 one was fine if you read the the comic because you had context. But, um, you know, trigger warning, it's got 
uh, sections of it that have what one could argue is gratuitous amounts of sexual violence. So mm-hmm. if that's a, a pain point for you, you won't enjoy this. Um, it's not like the, a, it doesn't show up all the time, but it's there enough to where you're like, okay, this is ruining my experience. If you hate that enough to where it would ruin stuff for you. One of the things that I appreciate is when they get that shit out early, like uh, in the, I don't, I didn't see the 2016 one, but in the first episode of the, I don't know, pre 2000s berserk, I don't know when it actually came out, but it was before the year 1997. 2000. Okay, cool. Uh, the, in like the very first scene, there's some sexual violence. And so you, you know, like within a couple minutes, like, oh, nope, I'm out. This is not for me. And if you get through that, then at least you have that expectation set, you know? I don't actually remember the sexual violence in the first scene. Is it at the bar with that little, like they're groping that person or something? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. No, that, I mean, that's that, that is, uh, that's very PG-13 compared to, that's PG <laughs> compared to the shit that happens later. So Yes. Uh, all right, enough digression on that. We talked Grimdark already. Yeah. But dark stuff ahead. Um, he So they're being buried in Doris's, and I liked this only because... Uh, of his reaction to it. So he turns his armor. I forgot. He's got like that elemental suit, um, mm-hmm. which when he talked about it, you know, in the, in the list of entads, it was like, Oh, neat, but nothing to write home about, mm-hmm. but he switches it over to the, you know, elemental plane of acid. And after that, it's uh screams and burning Doris's, but it says that he switched it on with a pang of regret. And if June was in the same mentality that he was in when he killed onion, he'd be like, ha watch this. And you go mm-hmm. running through the crowd, you know, melting them as he went through, right? Right. Um, yeah. I think he hates Doris less than he hated Onion, which is mm-hmm. not actually clear why. Oh, I guess, no, wait. Onion was responsible for his kidnap and torture. Um, yeah, that's a good reason yeah. to hate somebody Okay, a yeah. I forgot about that. Totally, totally different circumstances. But that said, uh, not all human life is expendable, even when they can multiply and replace themselves. He doesn't even see these people as dis- as dispens- as uh, expendable. So yeah. uh, it's... It's a nice um, humanizing, angering moment for him. Yeah. And, you know, I I agree with him that definitely, like, he should have that pang of regret, even if they were just created a second ago. First of all, they're still feeling, you know, the pain of, of being burned with acid. And second, you don't want to lose that instinct of, of hating to cause pain to others. Because uh, if you don't still have that instinct, even if you intellectually know, okay, you know, these have only existed for a second or two, it's not a big deal. I I still want that emotional trigger to be in there because otherwise I'd be scared of you as a human. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, a virtuous person is is uh, averse to that sort of thing. Yeah, I wonder does that conflict with what I was saying a few episodes ago, where maybe you shouldn't feel bad for doing the thing that's the right thing. Back when uh, he was um, complaining of like, why should I feel bad for killing these horrible people? Um, I mean, we we talked about it at the time. You know, yeah. like I, I there, there's something I don't think you have to be a bad person to appreciate a good vengeance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's a that's a point that has, I think, fair contentions on either side. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think uh, the the onion thing, you know, he had heard this guy sucked. The guy kidnapped him. His underlings shot solace in the face and did their best to torture the shit out of him. And mm-hmm. try to soul rape him. Like, you know, it it was the the worst things that could happen to him, right? Yeah. Yeah. So and then this guy acted like it wasn't, you know, he 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 didn't even I don't know. There was no remorse. There was no like, well, you're clearly a dangerous bad guy that we needed to stop. It was just like, you know. Yeah, get fucked, onion. Yeah. 
which I'm, I'm still on his side. That was the yeah, fun. I think I think that's fair. fair. Um, yeah, you know, there was a fun discussion about you know with, with Raven about like how much fun am I allowed to have killing him, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, before I'm a bad person, and that that is an open question, I think. But uh, he's totally allowed to kill him, I think. Um, yeah, they get away, and Star Doris is looking at them like, "What the fuck?" And he said, "She says, who are you people?" And Amaryllis replies, "The chosen people of the one true God." Which really kind of stunned me, but I mean, I guess she's actually literally right. It's hard. It's hard to complain about someone being technically correct. That, that's what I put. I said she's not wrong. I just don't know if I'd put it that way. Certainly not right now to Doris Finch. Um, it's because of the implication, right? Yeah, there's that. But also, it's just it doesn't seem politically advantageous, and that's that's usually on Amaryllis's mind. That's true. She's definitely got some sort of religion style orientation with herself in relation to the DM, you know? Yeah. I think that's what really bugged my eyes out is the, the religious implications. She is a fanatic and that is always scary and bad. Like always, I I don't like fanatics of the religious nature. Most fanatics in general are pretty bad. Uh, And yeah, when you say you are the chosen people of the one true God, that implies that you can do no wrong. And what you have been chosen to do is must be done because it is right and ordained by God. And it's just, it's bad juju. I don't know if she gets that. Maybe they haven't had crazy fanatical religions on air, but uh, you know, even if they are the chosen people of the one true God saying it in that way means that you're about to go some crusading or jihading or something. I mean, I don't know if I'd go that far. I, you know, for me, it did kind of drop the, any deniability we had about this being a religion for her. Right. Um, but you know, saying you're the chosen people doesn't mean that you can do no wrong and that God uh, wants you to do literally anything you can, any, any, you know, it gives you a justification if you want to be a bad person. Um, but my biblical history isn't uh, super strong, but I seem to recall that the Jews that were being led out of Egypt as being called the chosen people of God. And uh, they had yes. a whole long list of things that they could do that they weren't supposed to, right? Um, I, I, in general, think it's a bad look for people to call themselves the chosen people of God. Well, and I'm uh, just saying even, that you can be the chosen people and still be like prohibited from doing things, right? Well, yeah, sure. But but it's a golden ticket to as, lie to somebody and say, this is God's will while you're cutting them in half. Yes. And also it, it means you think of yourself as your in-group is inherently superior to all other groups of people out there. But is she wrong though? <laughs> <laughs> She's not wrong. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, I mean that it's because of the implication. Yeah. She's no, not wrong. It, it squeaks me out a little bit too. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's like, it's not, yes, it's not the point. Isn't that you're you're wrong, Amaryllis? It's that you you don't run around saying that or really even thinking that way. Mm-hmm. But here we are. Here we are. And so there they get to the end, uh, and they allow the the Star Doors to make a clone of herself, so one of her can go free and survive and have this continuation of uh, experience, even though that uh, even if they go in there and get wiped out, uh, so she won't be dead fully. And uh, as soon as she does that. Uh, the one who is fated to stay with them as they go into the research facility pulls out a knife and tries to stab the one that's going to go free. And June obviously stops him right away because it's nothing for him. And he's like, so what was the plan? You wanted to kill her so that we would let you make a new clone? Like, Doris is just so fucking stupid in this scene. 
And I kind of understand why she would do that. But also it's because she's a fucking idiot, as as Amaryllis said to June, the previous chapter with the prestige. So uh, I, I'm starting to get why Amy hates her. That was that was just so dumb. Yeah. In the words of 21st century philosopher Tony Stark, not a great plan. Yeah, right. You know, so so assuming she had been successful, she kills Star Doris A. Mm-hmm. Well, then, you know, either the group says, well, that was your chance. We let you make your copy, right? Mm-hmm. You're coming with mm-hmm. us as you already mm-hmm. – as we already said, you're going to, or sure, we'll make make a new copy, but that one goes free. You're coming with us no matter what, right? <laughs> well, they don't know which one is the original one. That's that's part of it, right? You don't know who's the original until the, half the gear disappears. Oh wait, does it? Uh, it doesn't like pop one out to to the side or something. Do they do they blur like the area and then you've got two? That was the impression that I got. I forgot what this because looked that's... like when they um. When they I mean, they they did say they blurred the area uh, in the when they saw her do it, but otherwise there would be no confusion as to who has the stuff that's going to stay and who has the stuff that's going to disappear in twenty four hours. I assumed that there was no confusion amongst the person who cloned that they would both. Okay, hold on, I, this might be updating my whole idea of how Doris's work a little bit. It works even if I was off the mark. Um, mm-hmm. I got the impression that you knew if you if you copied that. Okay, I'm the one who decided to copy. Um, well, no, because the other one has all the same thoughts and history that you do. They would they would think that they're the one who decided to copy because they were. Mm-hmm. They decided yeah. to copy too, right? right. Um, I think it says that Doris blurred slightly and another of her appeared. Um, I assumed that the one who was standing, you know, like if I'm whatever, standing, leaning against this wall and I duplicate, I'm still leaning against the wall where my hand was, right? I got the impression that the blurring slightly kind of made it so there was a fuzzy space where both neither were you know there huh because then yeah you're right then they would know which one has the fake stuff but i assumed that or they uh i assumed that they did know which one had the fake stuff the problem was that you could sell stuff to other doruses and they would have no idea if it's fake oh but that doesn't actually change the calculus much for whether or not so the only thing you'd have to worry about is like is my entad gonna stick around in 24 hours Mm -hmm. huh yeah if they actually don't know which one is which um that you know what i could just totally have been missing it because that sounds distinctly plausible and like totally in line with everything you said so or everything that happens later on um i think i just somehow didn't grab that one piece of the puzzle so or not even puzzle i didn't read that part of the story i guess (laughs) (laughs) it's all good yeah it it doesn't really change anything meaningfully no no but it, it is an interesting wrinkle in their uh messed upness right um mm-hmm. which uh I guess per our spoiler discussion from last week actually makes sense even more so with that now. Okay. It's been screaming at my face this whole time. Somehow I just had it in my head. So, um, okay. Well, there's, uh, nowhere to go from here except for onwards to chapter 204 open veins. Yes. Um, they go into the research facility. Yeah. I can't remember. So this is the thing with my notes being a little out of order. Um, oh no, they, they fight some blood worms, right? That's in this chapter. And Mm -hmm. They're fast, but nothing to, you know, be terrified of because June's also fast. Um, mm-hmm. And then, so he kills some and then it's like, you know, great doubt. Let's keep, let's keep pressing on. And there was a line that said, so like there's, there's a bunch of other rooms that they're clearing slowly, but there's nothing else, no other threats except for quote, there were a lot of blood worms, but subsequent fights with them were barely worthy of mention. Mm-hmm. And this is just like another kind of meta sentence mm-hmm. that I really liked because it tells us that there are subsequent fights and it says that they weren't really w- mention worthy. So it just barely mentions it. Yeah. 
Like in any other story, that would just be a sentence, right? But June just last chapter got, was telling us about how the, how he would you know write out the boring stuff. Mm-hmm. And so rather than say, you know, we had 17 more encounters and, you know, sure, I had to dodge and uh, burn some bones, then heal them and whatever. Like he just skips all that. He's like, yeah, we had a f- we had some fights. Nothing. Yeah. You all you all know I was going to win. There's no yeah. excitement there. No, nothing to take up page space about. Exactly. Uh, but there is a thing to take up page space about when we think about his friends because they're about to get into the final inner layer, and uh, he's wondering like Grack is the most likely to survive based on his powers. Maybe he should go in first, but then he thought uh, Grack was a friend and we spent a fair amount of free time together. Sometimes Earth stuff, sometimes Dwarf stuff, but it felt like there was no story left anymore. Just gentle support when he needed it. I was worried that he was expendable from one very important point of view, uh, that being the DM's point of view. Um, I, first of all, that's good thinking. I'm glad he didn't put Grack out there to maybe walk into death, but... Despite the fact that I think it's a really good observation from a narrative POV, I also kind of disagree with June because the fact that Grack's story arc is basically over and he's come to peace with himself means that his death wouldn't be as impactful in the story, I think. There's there's not like a major story sacrifice here, so it's, it's less likely to happen for plot reasons, in my opinion. Because then it would, if they killed Grack, it would just be a basic fridging death. Uh, and June doesn't really need further motivation to go kill things and uh, do quests. He's already on top of that. So there's there's no need for a fridging death. Hmm. Yeah, I see what you're saying. He, he could kind of make the reverse argument and have it be equally plausible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe what he's saying is that Grack just doesn't have plot armor anymore. Uh, that said, he's got the best warding armor that anyone has ever had. Um mm-hmm. But there's no, like, nope, he needs to stay alive because he needs to help teach June this moral, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that that kept, that might have kept him alive before. Um, I, I, for me, it seems like a point against June's thought there is, like, Fen died just as he was starting to self-actualize, right? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. could teach June a lesson, but it certainly doesn't help Fen. Um, yeah. It, you know, the lesson June might pick up from that is, like, how to cope with loss or you know, don't wait to become a better person if you, if you know that you can or something, but um, yeah, that, that seems to contradict his thinking with crack. Um, I don't know. I, for me, I'm just like, don't zoom out and look at this narratively. This is, this is Amaryllis's, you know, insane space to spin her wheels on, like just enjoy your successes and, you know, enjoy overcoming difficulties. Um, I, yeah. I don't think that the DM is that predictable, uh, certainly hasn't shown himself to be yet, right? That's true. Yeah, like sure, things have worked out like they're a story, but we don't know exactly what kind of story we're in. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It just Ooh. it seems like a weird guessing game. I like your guess as to how Grack would die. Oh yeah, um, I, I put if we're if we're insistent on looking at things from this point of view, then Grack's obviously going to die, opening the gates to the portal or whatever, or like. You know, you guys go on. I'll hold them off when they're in the Felsey exclusion zone. Mm-hmm. But and I really hope God that's not damn, how this that works. is that is entirely correct because that would be a great noble death for him. And and that's now I'm kind of looking forward to it. Well, I, and that's I, what I, and that's what Grack kind of wants. He wants to yeah. do the most good. And if he's like, well, if I can help them save the lost king and save all of Arab, that's like mm-hmm. you know, I would. He, he's going to jump at a chance to throw himself in front of that trolley, right? Mm-hmm. So I. uh 
I can see how that'd be his motivation, but it, I, 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 see what you, I know what you mean when you say that you're looking forward to it, but I really hope it doesn't happen. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. I want them all to live happily ever after. Yeah. Uh, he does say when they're talking about the possibility of a blood explosion happening, if you cut a, you know, super pump full of blood, uh, blood mage, uh, that it was described as being basically a blood nuke. It just, there's so much blood in them under such intense pressure that's just being held back by magic that if that ends, it explodes like a nuke and takes out half a city or something. And it's, it, June says, in the worst case, Grack would put up a ward and we would pray for the best. Actually, in the worst case, we would use the teleportation key and be on the other side of the hex. And both of those seemed nonsensical to me because if there's an explosion, there you don't even know it's happening before you die when you're standing right next to it. You don't have time to think and put up wards and bust out teleportation keys. You're just walking along and then suddenly you're dead. Yeah. I mean, I think Grant got that temporal plate thing that gives him moments of... Uh increased reaction time i don't think it's quite bullet time but um you know he it's not like that scene from uh x-men with quicksilver right oh yeah that was awesome but i, th- I think it it gives him some like oh okay shit's you know and he can do wards faster than anybody so that part's plausible but the idea of like hey amaryllis use sable let's pull out the teleportation pad yep now we'll all link hands all right you've, you've got your eyes closed and you found a place great let's teleport that all takes a minute right Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if they're on the business end of a blood tidal wave explosion, I don't think there's time to do the tele- teleporting business. The warding, you know, maybe. Uh, D- don't you have to at least think to put up a ward? Yeah, but I think that he's got time. Uh, like he would because he's got the, the temporal dilation uh, armor. Does it work all the time? Or does it kick in if there's danger? Or I mean, it might kick in I... instinctively, depending on how close they are to the explosion. Like, okay. you know, if the hand grenade goes off on, you know, the other side of the room, maybe you'll have an instinctive moment to, to kick on your bullet time. If you're holding the fucking thing, then, <laughs> you know, there's, there's no time there. Um, yeah. okay. Yeah. So I, I don't, I mean, luckily nothing comes of this, but it does seem like a weird thought for June to have. Yeah. That's so too. He is thinking too much in Hollywood logic in my opinion right here, but maybe, maybe I'm incorrect about something. Yeah, it could be. Anyways, they walk into the final vault and there's this giant contraption, weird, magical star magic shit. And they talk about it for a while, but they like just, they have no idea what it is. As Amarillo says, this could be anything. It's too much of a wide open space. It's here for us and we don't have a clue. And I got to say, I really enjoyed the Lovecraftian sense of eldritch vastness that we got here where there's just something and you don't know what it is, except there's this vague menacing thing about it. And no matter what happens, it's going to be bad. It just, it, it, it tingled that part of me and I enjoyed that tingling. Yeah, it's great. It's a big dark room with this, you know, jungle gym transmutation circle looking thing in it. And what's really in there is an infinite pitch black expanse of blood, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, it is as, I don't know, eldritch and vast and terrifying as you could ever hope it could be. Right. Oh man. So, uh, yeah, no, it's it's this definitely has some awesome creepy vibes to it. Yeah. And June is thinking that they're overthinking this. He says, I'd run into things like this when I was DMing uh, or situations that were superficially similar. The party would get to a part of the quest where they were supposed to just do a simple thing and they would end up talking themselves in circles for real life hours and then going down conversational rabbit holes without actually making any decision about the matter at hand, which wasn't even supposed to be a decision at all. And in this case, I it's like, what do we do with this thing? And the answer is like, well, we just break it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. 
But they're like, well, hold up a minute. Yeah. <laughs> if we break it, what if the universe explodes? Anything could happen because we don't know what it is. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I feel him. We've all been there. I admit that one of the nice things about video games is that this thing sort of thing doesn't really happen because they are very much on rails. Uh, and I, you know, that's nice about video games. I'm worried that June is thinking a little too narratively right here. Like, again, I'm just not quite cl- vibing with him with his thoughts this chapter because. I mean, it could be a simple thing. They're tying themselves in knots over, or it could be that this is the part of the, of the adventure where, um, June's Lovecraftian source book is being tapped and they get all the weird, horrific things that you shouldn't fuck with. Yeah. That's, that's my, uh, maybe June just isn't good at thinking narratively from within this, like, you know, the contrived space of Arab that he sort of authored like mm-hmm. uh maybe emerald is better at it maybe she's not maybe that's just what it's like but the thing is like i don't think you actually get any further along the the track of the question what do we do with this portal looking thing if you like well let's step back and take a narrative look right mm-hmm. because there's always the other side of the narrative coin which is like the dm could just make it want us to think that right yeah this could be a setup so like just mm-hmm. do what makes the most sense and so I don't I don't think that there's ever a time where you can incorporate anything meaningfully into your decision making based off of like, well, let's let's take a step back and realize that, you know, we're in a story, a story that's meta as fuck. And the author is writing it as we're reading it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it just occurred to me, actually, the author was writing this as people were reading it. You know, Alexander could have changed stuff based on what people said. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> as the as the DM of Worth the Candle. Uh, that could have actually happened with the, with the actual story. But yeah. yeah, I just think, you know, chop that part out and just do what makes the most sense. Um, yeah. It, it feels like he's really leaning into the, uh, if I was the DM, this is what I would do. And therefore this is what we should do. Cause we can all just assume the DM is basically me. Right guys. I mean, putting it that way. I mean, yes, yeah, sounds mostly stupid, but the DM did say they're kindred spirits. Right. Mm-hmm. So he's like, well, if I was doing this, here's what I would do. But it doesn't seem like, everything that they run into is the sort of thing that he would do. Yeah. You know, if I was DMing this, this story, I'd probably have my house rape me. Like there's, <laughs> there's no way. Right. He could, yeah. I, I could imagine that he would say, Oh, I would totally have Fen die. Cause that would just be so sad. Right. Mm. Um, but I don't think that he would, you know, th- the Bethel thing throws a wrinkle in that. Um, mm. Unless, you know, maybe he felt like he deserved it or something. I have no idea, but um, yeah, well, uh, Luckily, later on, I think he takes off his narrative glasses and lets him lets him actually just appreciate what's happening. And so mm-hmm. uh, I'll, I'll point that out when we get there. But he doesn't he doesn't keep his head in the clouds indefinitely because I don't I don't like his head when it's up there. Yeah, yeah. And Raven kind of points that out too. She says uh, that he you know there could be many mechanisms for preventing calamities, and then well, when he sees us getting close to this, he just kind of removes the brakes uh, so that it can start playing out and uh grack points out that you that june is assuming that the dm doesn't cheat that uh he doesn't just go in and retroactively make stuff up in the world and he says i have to believe that because if i don't then it's hard to make any actual decisions and i think i don't know i think that june um finds it unesthetic that a dm would cheat and just like insert things and change the entire history retroactively and no one would remember that he changed it and that he wouldn't do that but like we know the dm cheats at least a little bit sometimes and i thought i think it's 
likely that he's retroactively changed things when he really needs to. I thought we kind of both believed that, right? Yeah. I mean, just think about it. This is actually, I'm going to hit this beat a few times when we get there, but I forget Davy Jones's name, Pinon or something. Pinon. Uh, okay. I don't know. You know, the guy who shows up from the library. Oh, that guy. Um, yeah, something like that. Yeah, I call him Davy Jones because he's got the eel beard. Um, yeah, I thought you meant the actual Davy Jones from the movie. Oh, no. Uh, okay. So um, that's just too coincidental, right? Mm-hmm. And with this with this blood portal, you know, like they're saying, it's like, what? So we were going to show up right before this exploded? Mm-hmm. Like, there's we, we, we could have gone somewhere else. We could have uh, been delayed. Like, this is just too perfect of timing. But even as they say, it could be like, well, it's a few day window. It's not impossible to maybe put those dominoes in order. But then Pino shows up, you know, at the exact fucking minute. No mm-hmm. way. So, no, the DM, I think, definitely cheats. And I think that's part of what he said made fighting fel- the prospect of fighting Felseed so scary is because he cheated. Um, we're not quite sure what that looks like, but uh, it's, I, I guess so we're getting, if- oh, sorry, go ahead. So if June is just disbelieving that the DM cheats to retain his sanity and be able to make decisions, like he he's just he's just pulling blinders over his eyes, right? Um, it might be that. It might just also be him realizing, like, okay, look, kind of what I was saying before is like if we uh, if we keep trying to look at things from this level, um, then we're we're going to just be second guessing ourselves, and there's no progress to be made. Well, maybe like. The other thought that I had immediately upon typing this out was that he could preserve his sanity by becoming a Calvinist, basically, because they believe that God basically knows all this and has arranged for everything. And then as I was typing that, I was like, oh, holy shit, Amaryllis is basically a Calvinist, which means that she's the only one that's interacting with God correctly in Worth the Candle. Mm-hmm. And I guess she just keeps being the true hero of the story. Um. Because she she understands the actual reality and is doing the only thing that makes sense if that's how the world actually is. Well, the thing is, and I think this was the same problem with Calvinism, is that you don't actually know what God wants. Like you yeah. think you do, but well, like it, even the Calvinists yeah. like had a book that they could pretend that you know was telling them what to do in any given situation. Amaryllis and is it, just guessing. And I mean, yeah, the the I believe the dogma isn't that they they know what God wants them to do. It's that they do things to find out what God wanted them to do. Uh, which God is an wanted me to do whatever I just did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Well, that's mm-hmm. fucked. Yeah. yeah like, that, you, God already knows what you're going to do and whether you're going to heaven or hell at the end of your life, but uh, you don't, so you got to do the stuff to find out what God has already predestined for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it could be. Uh, I don't... Well... I was going to say, I don't, I don't get the impression from the DM that that's, that's that's exactly what he wants, especially if we assume that the DM shares June's uh, attitudes towards religion. But yeah. I suppose there's a big difference between not liking that people are religious and uh, being the object of worship, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. well, I don't like religion in general, but when I'm God, you know, it's not so bad from this side, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, anyways, so Amaryllis, as always, correct and doing things correctly. Um, so June asks uh, how Library Amaryllis is doing since Amaryllis syncs up with Library Amaryllis to find out what's going on over there. And Amaryllis points out that there is no Library Amaryllis. She says, it's all me. 
Uh, so she, Library Merlis, is a handful of seconds diversion from me, which means she's mildly unhappy with not having control of the situation here, but well-adjusted enough to put her nose to the grindstone and be subordinate. And this, I guess, was the first time I really, truly realized that, like, no, that's not entirely true. I also realized it when uh, she said, I only see you one out of every 30 days because there's 30 of me. But somehow, focusing on just one Amaryllis, it keeps blinding me to to that because it's just so hard to think of that all the time if you only see one Amaryllis in front of you. But like, I, I was trying to imagine suddenly having the memories of two full separate days. One where uh, you're doing all the stuff that Emeralds has been doing in the EZ and another one where you're in the library and reading stuff and just having kind of a chill day. And then uh, all of a sudden you find yourself back in the library and you have to get back to reading instead of getting to continue down the adventure where you find out what's happening in the Doris Finch exclusion zone and getting back to slaying. And it's just, that'd be really frustrating. You know, if, if I had the memories of just having done that, all of a sudden I'm in a library and I can't do anything about what's over there. And I won't know what happened over there. I'm like, fuck, just got teleported out of the cool place. Yeah. It, it, the other weird wrinkle with Amaryllis, um, is that like, there is an actual true Amaryllis, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Adoras, they all have equal claim to that. Yeah. And so her situation's even more fucked up, but no, you're right. It's, uh, this, this drove home, you know, it's one thing to imagine. Okay. Yep. We all diverged at the moment that I made the clone. And we can sync up. And by that, I guess I sort of just, maybe I didn't internalize what that meant properly because mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, you use that word maybe at work. All right, let's, let's sync up about this after lunch. That's mm. not really up. People might talk, but that's, I've heard that sentence. Um, mm-hmm. Let's, let's touch base. We'll catch each other up later. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of how I imagined this going with her and her copies. Uh, kind of like with the bracelet version of her. Right. Yeah. They they synchronized, but they didn't merge. You know, they they talked and they communicated some stuff. Um, that, so that's sort of how I assume this was working. But no, when she uh, synchronizes with them, they get caught up, and so does she. So like like she said, no, they're all me. So I'm stuck at the library, annoyed that I can't help here. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But well adjusted enough to put my nose to the grindstone and be subordinate, and that's why. Uh, that's why she hates Doris so much, right? <laughs> yes, because she's there cooperating herself all the damn time, and it's really fucking frustrating and difficult. But uh, and, and Doris is just fucking defecting everywhere, and Amos is like, "You, you could do this. I do this all the time. Stop being such a twat." <laughs> it, it's funny because the current Amaryllis copies have nothing to gain from trying to kill the real Amaryllis, right? Right. They they can't like take over her life. I'm pretty sure they would all explode if, if this Amaryllis died. And mm-hmm. so it I suppose they could try, one could try to like put her in a state of living death mm-hmm. and usurp her life that way. But it doesn't seem like a very Amaryllis thing to do. Um she's just gonna kinda suck it up and, and do the hard thing. That's that's always been Amaryllis's angle. It's also a little bit different for Amaryllis because she really is just one person that's really spread out and keeps having all her memories updated. So she remembers everything and is one person, whereas Doris is like split off and, and never reconverge. So like each one of them starts becoming a new person and will never be the same again. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, I can't remember how old the, the Doris exclusion zone is, but um, it's been some, it's been 
I don't know, one or two or three centuries. Mm. And so it's entirely probable that there are pockets of Dorises who haven't, you know, who have been separated from like by 50 years. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's definitely different. I was going to give Amarillo's another, you know, high five for like not immediately trying to kill herself when she used the bracelet, mm-hmm. but the bracelet was also an explicit copy, right? They yeah. weren't both her. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Cause one was the, the copy there, there wouldn't be a way to be like, well, you know, I will just go to the copy's body now, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So that's a different, another difference with the Doris's. So you know, maybe it is just the fact that uh, the Amaryllis in the library literally stands to gain nothing by trying to kill this Amaryllis that is keeping her from doing it. But I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Okay, but it is kind of fun that 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 is an, an entire difference that like a valuable difference between her clone situation and Doris's. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. So, uh, as you were saying earlier, the Davy Jones eels beard guy, Pino, uh, shows up and, uh, Raven asks him cause he's from the infinite library. And she's like, oh shit. Okay. Something bad's going to happen. Did the book record us being here? And Pino says, that's a delicate question. I suppose I can say that they don't. And what I'm guessing what that means is that, uh, in the timeline that he was reading in the infinite library after they left, uh, that the, the party is dead uh june and his party or or maybe just june but like you know since libraries don't do exclusions and they excluded skin magic after they left the infinite library that means either something during the exclusion event or after it killed june right i in in the you know in the world where there wasn't an exclusion event um maybe i uh i don't know um you know like if, if the if the book doesn't handle exclusions, then it would seem to mean that everyone that was killed in that exclusion event, uh, like persists through all of time in the infinite library. No, not necessarily. They just continue to have the life they would have had if there was no exclusion event. And then all of history after that continues, right? Yes. Yeah. But exclusion events can be so fucking huge that like the, the books that have no relation to reality after like one thing. Right. Right. So, Maybe oh they I guess they'll get rewritten every time someone leaves the library so mm-hmm. like they can sort of kind of stay up to date on that but nah I I was just too sus of of Pino showing up here to believe anything out of his mouth like <laughs> like from from a number of of perspectives right like I mean on the one hand he just he does just oh I made a joke that I didn't realize I said something fishy is going on with him um, but you know he he the book says that Pino says that the books don't mention that they're in th- that they're recorded being here. Right. Mm-hmm. So he could be lying about that. Um, That's true. It, it could be that the books actually don't because the author who wrote about this thing didn't know the council was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it could be that, uh, I mean, really the, the DM allows whatever books and presumably whatever contents of those books into the library. Right. Um, I guess ultimately, yeah, sort of like, he could he could veto what gets in there. I don't know how much pay attention he's paying to the library, but I think I'm, I'm not sure how omniscient he is. You know, I I guess I don't know either. But the fact that this guy showed up is no coincidence. Mm-hmm. It, okay. It's too much of not a coincidence that mm-hmm. like the whatever led Pino to be here. Assuming the DM really didn't just spawn him around the corner, mm-hmm. which is kind of what I think happened. The timing is too perfect, right? Um, if, yeah, if, I mean, he did say that, like, he'd been hanging out for a while, making preparations, and then he saw people were going in. 
oh how what a what a convenient story <laughs> i know you know yeah. I, I i don't know my if uh but but the dm does control what's in the library otherwise they could find copies of worth the candle in there right unless the dm was holding the only copy yeah but that seems i mean that's that's plausible i guess but uh i so that that's my my those are two of my levels of like pino being here is weird which sucks because i'm glad he's here because i like him but hmm. uh even like narratively if i'm gonna try and put myself in june's shoes i have no idea what the fuck he's doing here yeah. he, he actually doesn't do anything yeah. right he shows up out of nowhere very disconcertingly and then he just leaves he gives them some exposition that turns out to be kind of wrong but gives them some idea of what to expect so they go ahead and open the thing right instead of uh instead of trying to destroy it or whatever oh yeah yeah okay so it just reinforces my idea that the dm put him there but um, (laughs) the dm was like you guys are faffing about way too long i'm moving this forward instead of losing an entire dm session to this or just like you guys aren't knocking that thing over you guys need to open it so the doors can come out right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that said they could have knocked it over and then oh no the door opened anyway you know yeah like i guess them having some idea not immediately attacking doris helped but there might have been other ways to make that happen you know it again this guy just seems uh it's not clear why it had to be him you know because he's got he's the only one with plausible future information maybe but my my other like least insane hypothesis is that it's specifically him who shows up and not someone else because he's on friendly terms with june and you know, won't try to kill them on sight, but also uh, June can, he's like, Hey, send to those people that are mind shattered to the Isle of Paran. I'll fix them. Right. Mm-hmm. And that lets him kind of close a thread on uh, one of his stories, you know, like third was kind of closed enough. Like they're fucked forever. Right. Um, mm-hmm. That's, that's enough, but uh, that's even assuming they're still alive. Why would they be? Um, maybe yeah. they just kept feeding them they were really nice they treated them like uh, you know the life support patients that are brain dead but some people just won't pull the plug I mean I think that's an admirable thing to do if you have any expectation that they can ever get better maybe they did you know maybe they thought we'll stumble across the answer in a book someday right yeah that's okay. probably true yeah and also they had infinite food there right yeah they have infinite food but like somebody's got to be changing their diapers you know that's true yeah like it, it would be a be a mess mm-hmm. um, anyway I, I had to rant about Pino being here because it really comes out to me as just like i want to say the most implausible thing that's happened now granted mm. we're 200 chapters deep i can't remember everything but uh oh no i guess every single tiny coincidence is too implausible right but that's sort of the point <laughs> um, yeah you know it but this this one it just feels like he didn't walk here from the infinite library right mm-hmm. no he 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 was he was spawned in out of frame so that he could just walk onto the set. Like <laughs> that, that's, that's what this felt like. Okay. Right. I rant over. Yeah, no, th- th- those are darn good speculations. I actually took him a little bit more at his word. I was like, Oh yeah, he was, you know, he was hanging out for a number of weeks, getting ready, trying to, trying to scope the place. So it kind of makes sense that he followed him in. Um, and when he told them his story, I was like, Oh shit. Because basically what he says is like the infinite library has decided they're not just trying to, prevent world ending threats they're uh working a little bit differently now and he's kind of coy about what they're doing but when he tells him the story that uh a blood god shows up here and eventually makes contact with the outside world and they start a fruitful relationship with it 
basically what is here is to recruit a blood god that he knows is going to come before the empire can get it and like get an ally of considerable power as the text says uh for the infinite library and so that sounds to me a lot like the infinite library is making a play to rule the world and since they have complete knowledge of the future timeline that should be really really easy for them do you do you think they're going to be an upcoming big protagonist or something someone trying to change the world and who also has it out for june and <laughs> they're trying to take over and it's hard to fight someone who can see the future i mean they have to see the future at great cost right they can't just like look five minutes into the future and make the right moves they have to travel to the library spend some time finding the books whereby time is passing in real in real time on on Arab. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can they can go off and prep and come in armed with the information from the future um but so that's what makes them not immediately undefeatable. Right. Yeah. I If this didn't already have the obvious end bad guy protagonist or antagonist. Um, right. A fell seed. Right. Then this this might have been plausible. But frankly, I don't think there's room for them to take down the infinite library, you know, um, yeah, unless yeah. it's a quick throwaway thing, uh, yeah. a side quest. Like, yeah. I guess take over the world has different connotations. Like, I don't know if they're there. Like... Because he says that something along the lines of like, you know, different leadership, you know, the business of keeping the world on track has a change in strategies, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't think he's like, we're trying to take over the world and rule it because we know what's best. It's more just like, we're not going to take back seats and only stop like the really big world ending things. We're going to take some easy wins if we can. But then why are they trying to recruit the blood god? That's not like an easy win. That's like gathering power. Well, I mean, better they recruited than somebody else, but that's a that's a quick, um, you know, sliding scale into the the dark timeline where you become the bad guy, right? <laughs> right. I think June has a thought like a creature of blood granted its power through eating just enough Dorises that it could think. Well, it wasn't the kind of ally your average hero would have, but for me, it seemed about right. And right. I'm just like, does he still have a companion slot open? Um, mm-hmm. I didn't know this was a, a Doris. Yeah, I thought it was some blood monster. Mm-hmm. And then I was wondering how he's going to convince himself that a blood monster, you know, wants to be in his harem. Oh, he'll find a way. You know, there's if you're if you're a horny enough eighteen year old, you can always find a way, right? Well, I, I think you make a good point that there probably isn't enough time left in the book for them to become another major bad guy before Felseed, um, which sort of disappoints me if they they don't because this reminds me a lot of How You Lose the Time War, which was a very interesting novella, but one which I ultimately was a little disappointed in because it had this cool basically this kind of setup two different um two different factions that could see the future and manipulate timelines and that were trying to infinite game of chess against each other and uh it, it didn't it didn't really explore that at all and that was the part that i was most interested in hmm. plot wise and i was like oh man if anyone could pull this off it would be alexander yeah i don't i haven't heard of uh, this is how you lose a time war. But in that, in the author's defense, that sounds like a really hard thing to write. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, methods of rationality only was able to do six hours of twistiness. And even some of the ones, you know, where like where they're trying to dissect who broke out Bellatrix black, like mm. that's about as convoluted as you can get like him and Snape yeah. sitting there drawing lines that we don't even get to see on, you know, different timelines. Right. Um, yeah. Why did I see a paradox when I went to go back to get Harry, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, uh and, where was i going with this um well and also in the author's defense uh or defenses there's there's two authors they co-wrote it um the that's not what they were trying to do at all like that was 
kind of cool background material, but they were basically doing a Romeo and Juliet type story. And this was just like the cool dress setting for it. So, you know, they, they didn't want to go all in depth and nerd out and explore all that, which is fine. But like once they whetted my appetite for that, I was like, damn it. I now have blue balls for time wars. Like me with um, parchment, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On the plus side, though, you know, I don't know how long a war against a library would take. I'm also not sure how much long we have left in the book. I feel like something, I feel like we're at around the 90% mark. Um, but because that's what my phone says. But like I said, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure when I downloaded the book. Like if, mm-hmm. if I have the complete version on my phone or not. Um, I'm pretty sure you don't because there's definitely more than 10% less left of the book. Oh, well, then in that case, this actually gives a narrative explanation for why Pino is here, right? Mm-hmm. To set up this conflict. Well, there we go. And so that that gives me a satisfying explanation for why we're hearing from the Infinite Library again, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. I like it. Well, oh, so you thought that you were you were that close to the end of the book. Yeah, I thought I thought that we were basically closing in. Like they were going to do this, the blue in the bottle thing, reunite with Bethel, go kill Felsey, slash find Arthur, the end. Um, right. Because you they, read the whole thing, or you downloaded the whole thing when we first started the podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was still being written. It was not done yet. Okay. Well, great. So we've got some we've got some room left. Um, well, I was thinking that. Oh, before you know, you know, I guess lest anyone think that you spoiled anything by giving me any idea of how much time we have left on it. I was going to say the thing about Pino might be here to kick off the the war with the library before I knew that there might be 87% left and not 90%. So um, <laughs> cool. All right. Well, that, that sounds like a, sounds like it could be fun or yeah. another awesome story, fan fiction for someone else to write. Right. Uh, so yes, they open the thing up, the blood doors pops out. And June realizes that she's a master blood mage that's reached the peak of her power, and she's the only survivor of the Clone Wars in an elemental plane of blood. And that sounds like a really lonely existence. <laughs> and I, you know, I just thought of her thinking, yeah, there, there's no one left, so uh, I guess I must have one. Is that from something? Oh, yeah, it's from a song. Oh, what's the name of the song? You know, if I can find it, I'll link it in the show notes, and I'll, like, maybe put a clip somewhere in the in the episode. All right. Yeah, the, the, the blood door is jumping out of there, like just coughing up like an insane amount of blood. Um, and I can't remember, did June ever have super high level blood magic? Certainly not this high. No. So he never mastered out on that like he did on still magic and all those combat magics. Um, no, he never did. Because I mean, like, we talked about hypertension. He has some other perks about like he can control blood even if it's not in his body anymore, um, yeah. which I think is maybe what he helped helped him take down Momrath. Uh, oh no, it totally is. Um, so that like, they're standing in a puddle of blood. They have been this whole time. Right. Mm-hmm. And if June's conjecture yeah. is right, which it totally is that she's a master blood mage. I mean, there she's, they're already standing, you know, they're, they're right. Her. Exactly where she wants her, wants them to be. Right. Yeah. But Amaryl is saying, don't let her out of the big ward that we put up around the place. And June says, there was no question of letting her out because she was already out. And that's how the chapter ends. And I really wished I could have ended the reading on on that because that would have just been a perfect place to to <laughs> get you and everybody else like, fuck you. Now I have to stop reading. It would have just been a great place to end. Well, I'm glad things didn't shake out that way. Yes. <laughs> Instead, unfortunately, we got to end on a kind of like nicely resolution section so god uh, what a bummer i know poor us but <laughs> yeah. it's a bloody mess first so it is in chapter 205 
Uh, and this is the part where uh, June gets to throw things in Amaryllis's face where she's like, yeah, okay, we made her a promise that we're going to let her out, but we can just not. And June says, promises work better when people know they're ironclad. You're saying we should defect against Doris? That justifies a lack of trust in us. And I was like, yeah, Amaryllis is always the Mrs. Keep All Promises person. <laughs> like, what's this bullshit where all of a sudden she doesn't have principles when it comes to Doris? I think it's because Doris doesn't have principles. Um, well, yeah. You know, like, lying is the first form of violence, right? And when real violence is knocking, I think lying is totally on the table. Uh, okay. June isn't saying, well, we need to honor our promise, so we, we should let her go. He just knows that, like, oh, we've already lost. Mm-hmm. But he can't say that. So he's trying to, like, you know, appeal to her another way. Um, mm-hmm. He's not saying, oh, I, I'm totally, if I could kill her, Amarillo should be dead. No, no, we, we can't. She's too strong. <laughs> he, he can't come right out and say that. So... Mm-hmm. I think that's it. Doris says you would double cross them, uh, meaning the people that hired them to walk in here. They they were given the mission of killing whatever's in here. And now it seems like they're not gonna. And Doris is like, oh, yep, yep. You would double cross them. And Amaryllis is like, no, we're not allied with them. Just trading partners. And uh, Doris says, you, you are actually double crossing them because you're going back on your contract. And June says, they lied to us about what was going on. Which is like, you know, we we signed a contract under false pretenses, so we're not actually double-crossing them. And, like, I get that at this point, uh, the, the game here is to convince Doris that they are trustworthy because they're, you know, trying to make Doris trust them and maybe become a better person or something. And to do that, they have to convince her that they don't renege on deals because if you renege on deals, you're not trustworthy. But, like, in all honesty, they really are kind of double-crossing the blues here. And they're trying to get out of it on a technicality, but I think it's obvious that that's what's happening. And I don't think that a Doris would be fooled by this at all. Like, maybe this Doris wants to believe them for some reason, but like a real one, a real Doris that was really focused on really knowing the truth of what was happening, I don't think she'd be like, oh yeah, you're right. You get off on a technicality because they didn't tell you that they... they uh, unleashed this blood monster by making a portal to the blood plane and putting blood mage Doris's in it. I don't know. I, I don't know what they're, I don't remember they're meeting with the blues. Like, you know, they, I, there was some like, all right, we got a job for you. You got to go stop this world ending threat that we have no idea about. Not mm-hmm. you've got to go kill one of us. They got too strong. Uh, so I, yeah, you know, if I'm not sure how much they were misled, but you know, just like it's totally fine to not pay your your landlord if you sign a piece of paper that says I owe you twelve hundred dollars a month, and they're like, "Where's my fifteen hundred dollars in rent?" Yeah, you say, "Fuck you." Here's the twelve. Yeah, yeah. That's in the paperwork, right? Um, right. So, like, you know, I think it's totally fine to actually, per the withdraw consent thing at the top, like if they're not playing by the rules, then it's, yeah, all right, neither are we. Rules changed. I think that she is the kind of person who would say, "Oh yeah, I'm totally the kind of person who would lie to somebody." to get them to go do something right mm-hmm. so i think that she she thinks lowly enough of herself or she she believes it's definitely probable that the blues uh would be deliberately misleading but in that case they're just kind of lying to doris right now which i guess is fine because the name of the game is to convince her that they're trustworthy not that they're actually trustworthy but like if you sign a contract to go kill the person in the other room and then you walk into the other room and it turns out that the person you're going to kill is the twin brother of the person, you know, you signed the contract with, would you be like, oh no, you didn't tell me it was your twin brother. I can't go through with this now. Like you signed a contract to go kill a person that if you want to get out of it, then sure. But 
don't try to be like, oh, if if you had told me their identity, I wouldn't have killed them because they're your twin. You mean like the person who you signed a contract with or your twin? No, no, the person that you signed a contract with twin. Oh, well, so they just want you to kill their family member? Yeah. Oh, because they're Doris's. I was confused. All right. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I think there was a movie a few years ago where it's like press a button on this box and get like either 10000 or a million dollars or whatever. But somebody, mm-hmm. some random person dies. Mm-hmm. I didn't see the movie because the plot was going to be obvious. It wasn't going to be random. It was going to be like the guy's wife or the the woman's husband or whoever the star was, right? Ah, okay. Um, I can't remember what the name of the movie was. I just remember like some webcomic where somebody hears the first part of that deal, that Faustian bargain. Mm-hmm. If you press this button, somebody will die and they just hit it. And they're <laughs> right, like, I no, but you that. also get $10,000 and they're just like hitting the button over and over. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh you know, it's like, well, it, no, I, it's going to be someone random. It just happens to be, you know, your spouse. And it's like, that's not random. And we both fucking know it. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, there's no way there's a seven and a half billion, one in seven and a half billion chance of that happening. Um, Is that actually what happened in the movie? I can't remember. I, I know that it must have been somebody that they knew. Otherwise, what's the tension? Like just their friends well, if, judging them. If that happened in the movie, I would feel like I got ripped off by the advertising. Because yeah, that's not a random person. You wouldn't. You would feel fine defecting against it. <laughs> <laughs> well, whether yes, or not this, but- I, I might. I can't even think of what the movie was called. So for all I know, that's not even how it happened because I never saw it. The point is, hypothetically, that's how it went down. That's what this was, right? Um, and not, I think I'm, I think really, I'm straining it too much. <laughs> yeah, this isn't someone they care about. This is just another fucking Doris, right? Yeah, they've already killed dozens at least. You're right. So the goal is to make her believe they're trustworthy. So, you know, if you have to to fudge things a little bit to make that happen, I mean, Val does that, right? Yeah, but we don't trust Val, do we? Well, I you make uh, a knockdown point. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I think the I, best I have no rebuttal. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're right. <laughs> the, the best way to be viewed as trustworthy is to be trustworthy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on the plus side, I do actually believe them to stick that they're going to stick to everything that they're saying, right? Um, I, I think that if they wanted to, while she was in that little house taking a shower, Grack could have walked around it and drawn a board of, you know, annihilate everything perfectly, and mm. they could have destroyed her, right? Mm. I, I think that killing her was totally within the realm of possibility. Well, I think Grack does say that he could make a, 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 a ward that, yeah, would kill her and would protect them. Just most of the rest of the EZ would get destroyed in the process. Oh, nice. Yeah, so he's right. Um, I, I forgot about that. So they had a chance to actually defect and they didn't, right? Um, well, yeah, they had a chance to actually kill her. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, they're, they're trying to gain trust and uh, they, they keep it, right? Mm-hmm. They don't just like, hey, you know, if you let us in, we promise we'll be nice. And they, they don't turn around. And, they don't turn around and kill her. They actually be nice, you know. Yeah. Okay. So I think it. Oh, so they have like they have some of this conversation um, that I, I was just summarizing there. I think she's like, I take some food and water, and Grack has like a little like kit of pockets on his vest. And mm-hmm. she's like, I'm supposed to have a hot shower in there. And he's like, Well, actually, <laughs> he's got a little mini house, and yeah. I fucking love it. Made me think of Jace. Uh, Jace Aww. is also an enthusiast for those, and I just in my notes I think I put Jace has entered the chat um sweet but yeah the tiny uh, houses are awesome they're fun in a really like fun quaint way uh mm-hmm. i think i'd love to have one but i'd hate for that to be my primary residence i i kind of would have loved for that to be my primary residence before but there's not a lot of room for having you know a partner in your life in those right. which is an issue yeah yeah and 
have, being a person with a partner now, uh, I would no longer be cool with the tiny house anymore. Even just pragmatically, it's like if someone stinks up the bathroom, there's got to be somewhere still inside the house to get far enough away from it where it's not a problem. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah, you can't ever entertain there. I, I like having people over. There's there's all sorts of practical issues with it. Yeah. But if but having you know, one in you your always... fucking pocket. Oh. Yeah, yeah. That's nice. It's good shit. Um. Yeah. So yes, they they're they're talking with Doris about trust, and Doris says, "I if I follow the rules, that means I'm at the mercy of those who don't," which you know is true. And uh, this is what's been making her cannibalize herself for hundreds of years. Yep. Exactly. Uh, I I remember reading a post recently why you should trust trust and distrust distrust, which uh, points out that trust is a way of coping with the freedom of others. You don't need trust if other people don't have freedom, right? And as freedom and the feasible set of options increases, so does the importance of trust. When you have coercion, you don't need trust anymore, but you get uh, resentment instead. And now I'm a little bit worried about maybe this is going to backfire having blood god Doris in charge of the EZ. I mean, maybe this is exactly what the other Dorses need, especially if she's a fair ruler, but uh, maybe, maybe it won't go so well. So I'm glad you mentioned that because that's one of the things I was going to bring up. So Stardoris left a while ago. They had asked her before, it's like, what would it actually take for you guys to cooperate? And she's like, we, yeah. we would need basically, oh, we talked about this last episode, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So so this is that. Yes. If if you pulled, well, I guess they, they asked one random Doris, but for all we know, her answer is representative. Um, they They all kind of want this. You know, if, if what it takes is to live under a dictatorship, you know, yeah, super into worth it. Worth it in that case. Yeah. yeah. I, so I think that they might actually welcome, you know, they might welcome their new blood emperor uh, with, with open Overlord. arms, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Good point. Yeah. And I think, because she also said, like, it would need a panopticon of surveillance. I think that's Amaryllis's words. But I assume that Blood God Doris is, uh, like aware of everyone of all of doris blood she did say that uh while she was in the little house she could see what they were doing even though she couldn't hear them just through the blood on the floor i assume that's what she meant yes yeah so yeah, I, yeah. I think that uh as long as there's some blood around she can see what's going on and, and maybe it just has to be her blood but the thing is it's all her blood now right yeah so her blood is everywhere yeah even the the doris is outside are her blood so um i think that this also gives them the the thing is, like, you know, uh, tyrannical dictators on Earth get paranoid because people hate them uh, because they're vulnerable. Mm -hmm. uh, they they make a good point of of explicitly laying out to the, to Blood God Doris, like you're actually not uh, vulnerable. Yeah, that's like, true. So, so she might not become paranoid. Exactly. There, there's there's no threat of anyone trying to usurp your throne because they can't. It's, yeah. it's like if do it's like if Doctor Manhattan decided he was going to be king of Earth. Right. And it's like, you got it, boss. Like, <laughs> what are we going to do? Whatever, whatever you say, um, yeah. there's, there's no stopping him. And so, uh, I think, I think that's where they're at. Yeah. I love that they pointed out, you have absolutely no incentive to double anymore because then you would have another blood God Doris as powerful as you. And, uh, as long as you don't do that, no one can, can fight you. And I was like, nice, neat. She's, she now has an incentive to never double instead of the exact opposite. I know. It's great. Amaryllis, I think, right before that said, the only enemy you have here is yourself. Mm -hmm. And she says, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, you don't want to make another one of yourselves because then you might lose that fight because, yeah. you know, then you'd be right back in the competition match that you've been in for the last hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. She had to fight a whole war to, to win that. Yeah. And who knows how long or how many Doris has she had to kill in the blood dimension, but uh, I'm sure that was grisly and awful. So, so it was, both, it was both grim and dark in the blood dimension, right? <laughs> Very much so. Yes. Okay. I, I'm getting but some fortunately, <laughs> Yeah. Um, June points out to her. He, ma- he makes this argument, which I, I liked. I really liked at first, but then I thought about it some more. He says, you're not the, at the mercy of those who don't follow the rules, because even if you follow them, you're still stronger. This is after she said that, you know, if you don't follow, if you do follow the rules, you're at the mercy of those who don't. And I like that. I think it's a very noble way of thinking about it, that uh, they have to break the rules because otherwise they, they could get, you know, they're putting themselves at a disadvantage, but she can live by them because she isn't disadvantaged by that. But like, also, the rules, they're there basically to make coordination possible, right? And if she doesn't need to coordinate with anyone, she doesn't really have an incentive to follow the rules. Like, sure, she's not at the mercy of people who don't follow the rules, but she's not at the mercy of anyone, so the rules don't apply to her in any case. It's just, what, is she just following the rules to lead by example or something? I don't, I don't understand exactly how his argument works, aside from feeling noble and awesome. Um, I think that's might actually be it uh you know it because you wouldn't be noble or in the sense of that style awesome if you didn't follow the rules that you set for everyone else right mm-hmm. you would just be in charge uh, but doris doesn't want just to be boss she wants to be a better person yeah and so i forgot he was the one that says the only enemy you have is yourself because this is where he starts like looking at her like a mirror and he's like mm-hmm. oh i get you now like mm-hmm. the only enemy was yourself you know, it's all been self-sabotage and self-hatred this whole time. Uh, And like he's saying, you know, you don't have to, uh, no, no one's going to be able to punish you if you don't follow the rules, but like, so you're not doing it uh, out of fear of that. You're doing it, I guess. Yeah. To set a good example, to be a good, to be a good person. Mm -hmm. Right. And in fact, you're a better person. It's, it's like, um, you know, uh, if you have an opportunity to steal money where you, you know, no one will notice, um, and you don't do it, you know, that's a better, you're a better person, uh, if you don't do it right in the naive example, right. Yeah. Um, if you, if you steal it from an evil person to give it to charity, whatever, we're not going there. Uh, It's, it's like, nah, even, even if I could get away with it, I'm not going to, I'm going to do what good people do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really love how this Doris Kim, turned out to be a commentary about June after all and about his therapy and trying to get better. And it's cause it's just, it's all about his self-hatred and self-loathing. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's fucking perfect. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. Uh, we can, let's, we can keep digging into it. Um, it's, I mean, at the end of the day, so he, he's worried if he's like projecting when he's like, you know, Oh, it's, it's self-hate, you know, it's, it's self-sabotage and, uh she uh doris confirms it right yeah yeah she yeah she she says that they deserved it and amaryl says which means that you deserve it too and doris says i do obviously i do and yeah she's fucked up and i love it i really do because i don't know the reasons it's great though well it it's great because um it's it's really humanizing the uh um We've been on a humanizing the bad guys streak for a while, and it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. 
you know, maybe there aren't bad guys in the easy to define sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's still whatever undead that need putting down. So, you know, you can still have your fun, your guilt-free murder fun. Yeah. Um, but you know, the next onion that you that you want to go kill, maybe you don't. Um, it's what I liked about this is I, I had guessed, I can't remember if it was last episode or the beginning of this reading, but Amaryllis super hated Doris. And I was like, I bet we get a satisfying framing of her that will at least be satisfying to us, even if it doesn't convince Amaryllis, mm-hmm. but it does convince her too. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, the idea where she's like, yeah, no, I do deserve, you know, all of this obviously like she's not even trying to hide it right yeah she's like no i suck Mm -hmm. um and what i love about it is you know june talked about self-sabotage and um i keep saying that was another phrase that he used uh whatever um self-hate maybe Mm -hmm. but she she actually gets to take the hatred out on herself right Mm -hmm. you know if, if if she's just feeling particularly miserable about herself. She can just clone herself and start beating the shit out of that person. Yeah. And for all we know, she probably has been doing that. Right. Yeah. I think this is another reason I really love, I I know I've mentioned this on multiple occasions in the past, but I I love uh, speculative fiction like this science fiction fantasy, because like it lets you just take normal things and really blow them up to huge levels and, and really get like, major emotion wrung out of them and introspect them from various other angles because like when we started the the book we didn't really know much about june it wasn't for a while until we found out that he's actually kind of a jerk or or was acted like a jerk for a while and then we you know we got some nuance behind that but like having a the doris finch exclusion zone to really see what self-hatred feels like and how it results in you doing things like fucking over your friends and just making everybody hate you by being such a jerk to them because you think you deserve it and hey look here's a an example written in blood and void weapons of that sort of dynamic it's it's fun i like it much better than you know just the standard belly button staring literary fiction equivalent where there's no void weapons or duplications yeah no i mean i i'm enjoying it too it's i had no idea how they could try to find a resolution for this quest. You know, um, hacking 9 million doors to death with a machete was just going to, was going to be impossible. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, this is, this is a solution and, you know, we get here and I'm like, I'm sure there's something that justifies how she's so bad. And then she's like way worse than I thought. And I'm like, Oh man, she sucks. <laughs> and the, the one thing that really helps with it is like, yeah, is she basically Voldemort with less power? Yes. But unlike Voldemort, she's like, I got problems and I just wish that I could coordinate with myself well enough to solve them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I got 99 problems. And the fact that I'm a bitch is one. Right. And I'm all 99 of them. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, June did do one thing, which I thought found kind of annoying. He just says, but I'm not trying to talk myself out of a jam here. I'm really am trying to help you. And I, that, just a personal gripe for me personally, but I hate it when people say something like that, like, oh, I'm not trying to do something for my benefit. I really am, you know, trying to help you here. It's like, it's just as easy to say that whether it's true or not. So it's totally meaningless. And so for me, it it seems like a thing that a dumb person would say, <laughs> because it's not going to convince anyone that's smart. So it's just kind of wasting words and either assuming that I'm dumb or, you know, or, or the fact that the speaker is like, a- am I wrong? Should it be said anyway? Kind of like sometimes you have to just say things to bring them to the open, even if everyone knows 
the like the, the the old married engineer joke that sometimes things just have to be reiterated even if uh even if it's obvious and shouldn't need to be said you know like amongst um people who are already like smart and on the same side no i don't think you'd ever need to say that mm-hmm. like i'm trying to think of circumstances where it wouldn't be stupid and like maybe in front of a jury you know because, because you're, you're because you're, you're assuming the jury's kind of dumb yeah and you're trying to like really drive home the point but the point like the thing about it is that it means nothing if i don't trust you right mm-hmm. and if i trust you already then i i believe i already know that you're trying to help me yeah. right so yeah. you, you saying that you know it's weird because you know i could imagine myself saying something like this and being super sincere about it but i guess i when you point it out that way it's like yeah it's hard to find a a way a situation where like this actually is worthwhile um i guess what but like maybe if you don't say it then people will assume that since you didn't say it maybe you are just trying to benefit yourself yeah like <sighs> i mean that, that might be part of it like um i don't know uh like the not saying it has an implication even if the saying it is kind of dumb objectively yeah like i was trying oh i was trying to think of where the most recent example was um uh most recent example is too long of an example. So I'll give an older example, which is like <laughs> one of my older bosses um, a few jobs ago. Uh, I don't think he ever came right out and said this, but he might as well have. But his only his only real professional goal was to look good to his superiors. Okay. Um, it didn't mean that his, his, what that happened to mean was that he wanted to do a good job, right? And he wanted his team, to, the team he was managing to succeed. Right. Uh, mm. But that wasn't actually his primary goal. So there's actually no way he was this explicit with it. Um, but he did. I think he did say he wants to look good. Um, the thing is, is like uh, they, where am I going with this? Um, that That's the case for every manager. That's the case for everybody. You know, you go to a, take out a loan, oh, you know, right. or whatever, right? They're like, yeah. yes, I want your money or I want to lend you money because I get the interest on it. But mm-hmm. it's also true that I happen to believe that I'm doing a better job than the, the person down the street, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think everybody says that, and I think that they more might they probably believe it. So I don't know where I'm going with this, other than I can't tell if I'm like more strongly agreeing with you or not agreeing with it, with that. <laughs> but I think it, I think I'm coming down actually with you perfectly on this. Like it's just obvious. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so but anyways, that was a minor gripe. No, no, I, it's, it's, it's legit. Um, so I think this is when, uh, blood Doris is taking a shower. So I forgot she they have this conversation. Then she goes off for the shower and then, uh, they assume they can be overheard. Um, but so they're, they actually say some things that they shouldn't say. Like, for example, I could kill her. Um, like crack explains, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I'm glad that she didn't take that to affronting. Of course, all the other stuff around that and him saying, you know, I could kill her, but we're not going to. That's actually nice from a certain point of view, especially a Dorsey point of view. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that's not what I wanted to say. What I was going to say is that Amaryllis said, we came in here with an objective, more than one, actually. And he the he thinks, I was pretty sure that the translation of that was two quests. And she goes on to say, and as far as I know, those objectives haven't changed. And he's like, yeah, fuck them. And Raven's like, Juniper, you understand that there are very important people who might take offense to that. And I think that she's talking about the DM. And it's it's awesome. You know, because up until like he's talking about like, oh, I'm worried Grack's going to die because it makes sense story-wise. And 
should we destroy this portal or what should we do? Because narrative. And he, he, this is the June that I like, right? Yeah. He's like, fuck the quests. I'm, I'm here <laughs> to help somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, so for a while he was looking at people like plot devices and stuff and not, not for long. It's not like this was like a, you know, half the book struggle that he had to overcome, but it was just kind of long enough where I'm like, dude, that's not the you that we want. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, here's this person here. And if anyone is like expendable, it's like the, it's the, it's the undead and Doris. Right. Um, <laughs> but no, he's like, no, fuck it. I found somebody to help. I'm going to give the DM the middle finger and uh, just focus on helping make this person a better person. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting is they, do get, they get a quest update later. Uh, and the quest just straight up says you've decided, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but you've decided to try and make Doris like suck less. This quest does not have a victory condition. Yeah. So it's just like, basically I'm crossing off the 13 horror, you know, list, but now you've got this other unfinishable quest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at least now he doesn't have the quest to kill her anymore. That's yeah. kind of a nice thing. I think. And I think that's awesome. That's a good point. He then makes the connection between Bethel and Doris because he realizes that they are both extremely fucked up people who were traumatized by stuff and are still reacting against that and just need to feel secure and will never feel secure and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and then he thinks, oh shit, maybe this is, you know, also a way to get me to forgive Bethel and, and accept her again. And he even, I believe, says he does forgive her maybe a little bit right now. But uh, after drawing all these comparisons and how this is very similar to two situations, he then goes on to say they're totally different. I mean, completely, totally different. And it's not really what we're doing here because this isn't actually about Bethel at all. It's just a thought I had. I was explaining how the Dorises as people are completely fucked up. And like, I think he had a really good point that the Dorises are Bethel analogs. And I disagree that they're completely, totally different. They're pretty obviously pretty similar. Are they though? Like, yeah, I think Doris's thing is that she hates herself and loves taking it out on herself because she thinks she deserves it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think Bethel thinks that she sucks. I think that she thinks she's awesome. And yeah, I don't think that like it's perfect, but I think they're definitely analogs of people who've been fucked up by their circumstances in their past and are still fucking themselves to this day as a reaction to that thing, which shouldn't matter anymore because they've grown so powerful that it's not, it shouldn't be affecting them still. I mean, I think that they're similar in that they're both fucked up, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But that's like, they're similar in that they're both cakes, uh, you know, in the space of possible food. They're both cake, but like one is, you know, pound cake and one is German chocolate, you know? like it, Yeah, I think both being cakes is is pretty decent analogy. But it, it, they, they're still, uh, you know, pretty freaking different. Uh I I think if two things are both cakes, they're they're kind of close already in the space of all possible foods. I mean, in the space of all possible foods, maybe that wasn't the best example. I, but I see what you're saying. <laughs> you know what I didn't like about it though um, mm. was he's he's having this thought uh, about like again with Bethel, and he's like uh, he says, "No, I'm 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 just forgiving Bethel, if only a fraction, and wondering whether or not this is all part of a planned lesson that was intended to bring help bring her back." And the game level thinking of that took away some of the emotion of that moment. Yeah, that's true. And well, what's great about it is that like Alexander knows that like he and Amarillo's have a rule about that. You know, the very thing, right. Mm -hmm. Tell me about loyalty bumps, but not when they're there, not when they happen. So it doesn't ruin the moment. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, He could have mentioned this later, like on the, on the flight home. Um, 
But even with, you know, a little of the wind taken out of my sails, it was still moving to hear him trying to work through that forgiveness. Right. Um, And it's, uh, but you're right. There are a lot of similarities. I think that the difference is that like Bethel isn't self-destructive in the same way and isn't self-loathing, which I think those like that is, that's self-loathing is the big one. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the primary baggage that Doris has. Right. Yeah. But how they came to be fucked up is similar. And, where they are now in relationship to what caused that is similar. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, I, 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 I see where you're coming from there, but I think that the, the paths matter a lot, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, but not, not much of a point to like, uh, beat up on. It's just like, um, I think that maybe the other reason he's desperate not to make them like a perfect analogy is because he doesn't like the fact that like, Oh, this is a Bethel thing. So I can come to terms with that. He's like, no, I was right. here helping somebody. God damn it. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is more kind of like, you know, throwing the, the narrative glasses on the ground and just stepping on them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that this is in here to, to make him forgive Bethel at all. I think this is part of the June getting therapy to accept himself and, and become a better person thing. But if that makes him more forgiving person, because if he can forgive himself, right. Uh... Then he's the kind of person who's, who's closer to being able to forgive Bethel for, you know, uh, and Bethel is a, a, aspect of himself so yeah important to be able to forgive yourself if you're going to be forgiving bethel i mean the thing is like it's not actually impossible to run through your real life doing this Mm -hmm. but you have to like really squint Mm -hmm. and his life here obviously granted is much weirder than ours um going through your real life doing what wearing narrative glasses uh narrative glasses and also like you know why did i run and why did i meet that person at work well clearly that helped help teach me this lesson right oh yeah some people do actually do that yeah and i I have uh, currently mostly negative feelings about that. If it helps you, great. I don't want to shit on the way you run life. Um, right. I don't like it because uh, it it seems to imply that like bad things happen for a reason. Yeah, yeah. And I don't like bad things happening. And there's no mm-hmm. good enough reason. Uh, mm-hmm. So especially for the bad enough things. Exactly. Um, it, you know. So, uh, but that said, um, you don't have to assume that there's like an author and a plan behind it. What you can do is say. Okay, that happened. What can I do to like draw a lesson from this to make my life better, you know, going forward? Um, or at least not let this happen again or whatever, right? Like, uh, whatever, you get fired for complaining too much about your job. And it's like, okay, you know what? I actually liked having a job a lot more than I than I thought because not having one sucks. So not only will I complain about work less, but I'll also like appreciate having a job more. Yeah. You know, you don't have to assume that like God himself fired you. Um <laughs> Yeah, so you know, yeah the the really weird thing is that on Arab, if you're June, literally all the bad things that happened to you did happen for a specific reason. I know <laughs> it's 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 weird enough that like it it actually might be evidence against the Arabist therapy thing, just because if it was therapy, why have the game layer in it? Why tell him he's in the game? Why have him meet the DM? Right? I mean, maybe he's tried this before without the game layer and it didn't work so well i don't know that's a really good point if he was just here in zombie land you know with all this weird shit happening um and he was just another you know powerless mook who got mm-hmm. to spend 30 years to become okay at one magic right. um like yeah that he might not be motivated enough to actually try to do stuff and uh, yeah i mean he might need multiple lifetimes to get the therapy he actually needs and that that's inefficient yeah let's fast track that by giving him superpowers i actually am on board with that and that makes sense all right 
Amaryllis is like, oh, okay, you're going to, instead of killing Doris here, you're going to be, you're going for the diplomatic quest completion. Uh, what Are you going to do that with Captain Blue in the bottle too? <laughs> and June's like, yeah, regarding Captain Him, if I had to, I would talk about that desperate need to deny that you've done anything wrong, even when it's clear to everyone that you have. I tell him that it's seductive to believe that we live in an unjust world and therefore excuse our patterns of being shitty to others. I was like, ah, oh, well, there we go. That was the point of the captain all along. It was once again a thing with June to to help him get over his horrible life period and get better at being a human. Yeah, what's funny is I think you said something similar last week. I actually forgot to finish listening to last week's episode, so I can't remember. But <laughs> I, I did I did actually say something similar about that, although I put it in relation to Amaryllis rather than June. Oh nice. Yeah, but I mean either way, it that might answer his narrative purpose, like at least part of it. It still kind of makes you wonder about why the zombies. Well, it could be a two-pronged thing. Like I was saying that this is therapy for both of them and it works for both of them just in very different ways. Damn, that's a good point. I like that a lot. I was going to say, because like this this moral here, this parable of like, you know, deny that you don't have anything wrong or whatever, they could have just thrown that ingredient into Doris Finch's pathology as well, right? Mm-hmm. Or psychopathology. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, now we're going to give it to another exclusion and it, he's going to be the asshole's uh, zombie king. Um, and I guess the, the other the other thing about like, well, why the zombies then is kind of like, well, then why the clones? You know, Doris could have just been like a, a raging psychopath that, that they came across. And in fact, she could have just been a blood god by herself or, you know, over a small village. Right. Yeah. Um, but having her deliberately have to like face herself really shined light on the metaphor. Um, and, you know, it's grim, dark and fun. Right. Yes. Yeah. So. Like that, that's, that's definitely a part of it. Like, let's not forget we're, we're here to have a good time. So, uh, or have yeah. a terrible time depending on, you know, the level of reading you're at, but, uh, <laughs> how much of a time we enjoy things being terrible. Right. We're here to have a great time having a terrible time. That's uh, right. So yeah, the, uh, I don't know with the captain thing, I felt like I had one more thought on that, but, uh, I don't, it would seem just weird if every exclusion you know, like it didn't even like had, I guess what I was going to say is if they all had a lesson to teach June. Um, mm-hmm. And I can't remember the full list of 13. There was Zorian from Mother of Learning. Mm-hmm. And then there was like the Farmer King, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's unclear what he did wrong. Like He farmed not, too like, hard, man. No, I mean his personality flaw that. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, like, no, he, he just got too strong, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Zorian just happened to be stuck in a Groundhog Day or a Groundhog Month. Um, like it's... It's like, I don't, th- I don't think if you were to go to them, he would be like, ah, I've learned a lot about myself through the, you know, this thing, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, I don't think that there's, there can't be 13 of those and all of his companions, right? Well, maybe we're not going to go to all 13 exclusion zones then. No, we're not. We're, we're only going to go to the ones to teach him morals, right? <laughs> yes, that's, that's exactly. why, uh, that's why, um, I forget the, the dragon that assigned him the task of killing Kevin Blue in the bottle, but that's why she said, go kill him and not go kill the mm. the champion of farming yeah right so yep. then he could hide and then they could have to come here to talk to doris and now he's learning lots about himself and man oh man hmm. yeah so they're talking to blood doris and trying to reform her teaching her that she's powerful now and doesn't need to always be scared and go off her instincts they say if you go along with what your first instinct is then you're going to be worse off and i just wanted to pull that out because that is an insanely hard thing to learn and even after you learn it, it's insanely hard to actually do because like they're fucking instincts for a reason. You're supposed to be motivated strongly by them and it's ridiculous to go against them. And I'm very much um, 
appreciative, not appreciative. What's the word for when you're kind of like, that's a hoopty fruit right there, that person that's going to be doing this hard stuff. And I, I am kind of inspired by them. Respect, man. Respect. There we go. I am feeling some big respect right here for Doris if she manages to pull this off because that is not an easy thing. Yeah. There are like more terrestrial human examples we can think of. Um, I think we talked about this at some point on the Bayesian conspiracy, but you know, like there's, there's a common thing with uh, people who grew up in poverty to like use all the resources as quickly as possible because resources deplete mm-hmm. so fast. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so then it's like, well, why don't they just save money? And it's like, because they, they have never been able to, right. right. It's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy slash vicious cycle. And so overcoming that is hard. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, you're better off if you do, um, yeah. uh, you know, someone whose first impulse might be violence. It's unlikely that they'll live a, an optimal life if they don't curb that impulse somewhat, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's awesome and, and commendable. Do you have any deep instincts that you've had to learn to ignore? Yes. Um, a succinct version would probably just be some bad thought patterns inherited it, like in childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like uh, bad archetypes, archetype examples of things. And I'm like... Realizing like, oh, no, that's actually not a good role model example for what this should look like. But then realizing that some of that's kind of ingrained, so having to be mindful of it. Frankly, if I'm, I'm sure that I'll look back in five years and be like, oh, my God, you know, Stephen of five years ago should have exercised more. His impulse to sit around and play <laughs> video games all day, you know, fucking wrecked me. And the fact that I see that now should make me go hit the gym right after this, right? But am I going to? No, I will leave that for tomorrow, Stephen's problem. That'll be another problem for me to fix later. Are you willing to get at all slightly more specific about the thing that you learned? Bad relationship dynamics. Okay. My, you know, this is, I'm actually fine saying this publicly. Uh, I wish my parents had been divorced like 20 years ago. Mm, Uh, Yeah. My parents would have been better off divorced too, I think. You know, it's one of those things I've had to just kind of like decide like, well, they're adults. They can, they can do what they want. Um, In fact, they're, they're supposed you know, for most of my life, they're the most adult person in my life. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I'll trust them to do what they think is best for themselves. But if I had a relationship like my parents have, I would be miserable like my parents Mm -hmm. are uh, Mm -hmm. most of the time. And uh, I'm glad I don't. Uh, There was a, there was a moment in my life where I thought I would. And then like, I had like this, it was like an, like a hammer to my brain where like another part of my brain was like, fuck it. This is not going to be your life. And I was like, Oh shit. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Nice. So uh, you know, and again, this isn't speaking ill of my parents. They just, there are awesomely extenuating circumstances, yeah. uh, that make everything perfectly justifiable and explainable. Um, it's this just, uh, why- you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that kind of relationship for myself or my friends, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think everybody's fucked up, and this is why in a few hundred years, everybody is going to have a video game that they live through. Because <laughs> <laughs> we all need to get unfucked in some way. Well, in the meantime, we can do it, you know, with the power of true friendship and kindness. So, Darn tootin'. Uh, they, they, yeah, they, they basically make friends with uh, Blood God Doris, and they stick around with her for a day, and they leave an Amaryllis clone with her. But during that day that they're hanging out and uh, being buds, they go up to the roof of the research facility and they pl- pull a bunch of soil and seeds out of Sable because apparently Sable has everything in it. And uh, they plant a garden up there. And Blood God Doris says, the other the other Dorises are watching me. And Amaryllis says, let them watch. Let them understand that someone is growing things here. 
And I thought that is a really damn powerful statement within the Doris Finch exclusion zone because it means, first of all, that someone expects future returns from an investment, uh, which means that there is hope for the future. And also, it means that there is a power in this research facility strong enough to defend that investment. Because one of the things that kept cropping up earlier was why do anything? Why plan anything? Why try to make things grow if you know that they're just going to be taken from you and destroyed? There's no point. And now they're saying something is growing and it's right here because there is a future and this will be protected. And I thought that was awesome. That was a great way to make that metaphor. What's awesome is that June also thought it was awesome. Yeah. Um, You know, she says, yes, it'll be, you know, a couple of weeks before this even looks good, but good things take time. And June said, thanks. I didn't even realize they were working on a metaphor. And I'm just (laughs) like, damn it, me either. Like (laughs) that kind of went right over my head. I'm just like, oh, they're planting shit. Great. Like that's not, that's not smart, sustainable, whatever. But mm-hmm. it, it's a it's an extremely powerful symbol, and like it's actually so heavy handed of a metaphor that I think I I really should have got it. Um, <laughs> I think I read this yesterday where I was underslept, um, but I can't tell because my notes are a mystery. Uh, oh no, it has the day on them, just not the time. So, yep, it was yesterday. I'll give myself a pass. Uh, right. Yeah, but like that went right over my head, and I'm like, so when June says like I didn't realize we're working on a metaphor, and I'm like, fuck. <laughs> He's right. And I'm glad that Alexander knows that like not all of us are going to pick up on that. And I think that he was like, this is a damn good metaphor. God damn it. You guys are going to appreciate it. And, and, and awesome. it, it is. Yeah. Like you said, it, it's perfect. It, it, it hits mm-hmm. so many levels. Mm-hmm. Um, they leave uh, an Amaryllis there. Yes. Uh, you know, it's kind of dangerous because if that Amaryllis dies, all the Amaryllis clones die. Right. That's that was one of the, my things was uh you know, if if she dies, the rest pop, and that's you know. I think the fact that they're clones is out of the bag, um, mm-hmm. but it would still mean a couple of days of getting everyone back where they need to be, and it would just be kind of a political headache, you know. More Bu- than a, a couple days because headache. there's thirty, and she can only do one every eight hours, right? So oh like shit! Two yeah. weeks just to make them all, and then to ship them back to where they were. Like, yeah, yeah. So that you're right. That would be a pretty good kerfuffle. Um, mm. and not to mention that like living next to blood God Doris who lives next to 9 million other Doris is, is a terrifying mm. place to live. Mm. And, uh, that's, that's a bummer. So like he hugs her cause he felt like the, he seemed like it was, a, he felt, what did he say? I gave her a hug and told her to stay safe. And she seemed like she appreciated it because I knew that this was something that she really didn't want to do. Yeah. And Camerless like, is just so awesome. I know. So, I mean, talk about the exact opposite of, of Doris, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this one's going to live in constant terror until she, I guess, decides that her job here is done and she can, you know, hopefully when she fades away, she doesn't just pop like a sub bubble. I hope she fades like Ben Kenobi. Um, Aw. Just because it'd be nice for her. Like, that's how she departs, you know. Well, thank you, Blood God Doris. My work here is done. And she just gets to become one of the Force. Mm-hmm. By that, I just mean, like, merge back with Amaryllis. Right, but wouldn't that be awesome? is the force in this story. Yeah, but she but she gets to look cool doing it. That's that's all I'm really hoping for. Mm-hmm. Um, so the chapter ends with uh, them flying back to Captain Blue in the bottle because they have some coordinates now, and it 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 ends with him saying, "Captain Blue in the bottle, I was sure was going to get much less pleasant of a resolution uh, as compared to the Doris's." And I don't know, I don't know why he's saying that because at this point I'm kind of hopeful for a less murdery solution. I really enjoyed the diplomatic quest completion and uh i'm kind of looking forward to seeing how they're going to pull it off with captain blue in the bottle here you know 
this reminds me, Murdery Solution. You remember how like the two times you saw the Doris quest and how the numbers were different? Mm-hmm. Now we have an idea of how they jump around so much. Yes. You know, they, they, might as, they may spike, you know, a million in a day. Mm-hmm. And then they're down three million the next because they just threw a bunch of them into a fucking wood chipper. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, I just that sort of just clicked home because we're talking about murdery solutions here. You know, if we get there and it's another awesome like, oh, I didn't realize this about myself, and now we both can grow kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I'll appreciate it because this was done brilliantly. Like all I expected was that we'd get a cool backstory and feel bad about whatever happened here, right? Yeah. Um, but no, we're actually they they saved the day. Um, yeah. Maybe that's the secret solution to all of the 13 horrors. Um, but uh, if we if we go straight from one to another, uh, well, I was going to say it might feel cheap. But if anyone's going to not make it feel cheap, it'll be Alexander Wales. So uh, right. it, it would just so it would feel like if this is a TV show, mm-hmm. you know, and that started feeling like the, like the recipe of the week. Mm-hmm. Like, OK, God, I get it. You know, <laughs> you go there, you have what well, looks like it's going to be a deadly fight. And then you, you know, instead talk it out and you both learn and grow like. Mm-hmm. I don't need two Eventually more seasons. You get of this. tired of that. Yeah. yeah. So at some point, you just want to watch them kill each other. But uh, there's probably something here that's going to happen. And I'm, I, well, there's definitely something here that's going to happen. And I'm, uh, to me, it's a coin toss. Uh, if it does have a pleasant resolution, I really look forward to seeing how that shakes out. Because with his cooperation, it'd be so much easier to save everybody there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It would. With Ca- yeah. Yeah. With Captain Blue and Bottle's cooperation. Yeah. Absolutely. They wouldn't have to like find some way to bottle a half million people in 30 minutes. Right. You know, that said, I mean, they're going to have to convince him that he's better off living alone. Uh, I mean, I guess he could have his whatever humans around. Yeah. But what is he, what's he just not going to use his God powers? Maybe he could still make the less evil kind of zombies. The ones that don't have, you know, souls inside them feeling pain. That's a good point. Yeah. You know, there's a path for him to be a good person too. You know, it might be interesting. Is they they get halfway there because June's all you know riding the high of this having worked with Doris who if you know if it can work on Doris fucking Finch it can work on anybody <laughs> right. um, you know they're halfway there and then the guy's like nope fuck it and just starts you know executing people mm-hmm. um, it it would that would also be nice and dramatic and fun so yeah well well we will find out which one of those happens when we read the next three chapters oh man those are two oh six parallel lines. 207, an elevated monologue, and 208, on the merits of eternal suffering. <laughs> oh, uh, skimming back a f- several chapters. Um, there was one on the merits of, oh, it was on the merits of Oblivion. Yeah. It was a previous chapter. Yeah. And I, I remembered it before I found it, scrolling through the chapter names. Okay, so parallel lines could be an Amaryllis POV, or an Am- uh, what's plural for Amaryllis? Amarilli? I, yes, let's go with that. Plural, pluralilis. That's hard to say. Um, Amaryllopodes. <laughs> um, anyway, so it could be that. Or it could be, you know, the parallel storyline here, like what we do with Doris, we're going to try with Blue in the Bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, monologue could be the guy monologuing. And then mm-hmm. I was going to say the monologue could be on the merits of eternal suffering, but they're different chapters. So, well, it's a mystery. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Uh, I feel like there's usually something else we say before we wrap up, but I will just jump right into saying uh, this is a lot of fun. Thanks to Alexander for making this game so we can all make friends and become better people along the way. Hell yeah. All right. Uh, see you in a week. Sounds good. <laughs>